This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is a special edition of Sunday Morning. It's our annual food issue, our invitation to eat, drink, and be merry. Eating and drinking are definitely easier and merrier when there isn't all that pesky shopping to do first, which is where the online entrepreneurs who say we deliver come in. Anna Werner will report our cover story. House calls from your grocer. Hello. Everything you want, including dinner. Is some wild Alaskan salmon. Ordered online, delivered to your door. What we think we're doing is just making cooking at home more affordable, more efficient, higher quality, and better for the environment than the way that people cook at home today, which is going to a grocery store. Is your next meal coming out of the box? Later on Sunday morning. If not a meal at home from a box, how about a delicious bite at the museum? John Blackstone tells us about artistry that's not just on the gallery walls. Now on display at San Francisco's Museum of Modern Art, 
delicious works by some of the world's master chefs. These little dots are where these dishes that are currently on the menu are coming from. Later on Sunday morning, a bite at the museum. Bellissima is Italian for beautiful. It's also the name of a sparkling wine from Italy that has Christy Brinkley as its number one fan. Mark Phillips has been watching her in action. Actually, I was watching an old Bellini movie. Nobody has to teach Christy Brinkley how to sell something. You can't even say Bellissima without Bellissima, you know, just... Without wanting a drink. <laughs> Christy has good reason to be enthusiastic about this new Italian Prosecco wine. She liked it so much... All natural. She bought the company, or part of it. Being bubbly about bubbly, later on Sunday morning. The spice of life is enlivening meals all over our land. But first, it has to come out of the ground in Hawaii, which is where you'll find our Lee Cowan. That's the yellow turmeric, and that's mostly what I grow. Hawaii is a land of many mysteries, but there's one growing in the ground that has people clamoring for a taste. I don't know if it's a miracle crop, but, you know, they're doing a lot of research with it, so we'll let those folks decide. The tropical superfood that is super popular, ahead on Sunday morning. What's bad is good, or so say champions of a trio of foods that have been under a cloud for quite some time. Serena Altschul clears up the controversy. Thanks. After years of being linked to high cholesterol, this chicken is Veronica. The egg is finally coming out of its shell again. Is the egg experiencing a sort of renaissance? It is, and I think we're taking it on with a great deal of joy. Oh. Here's more happy news. Other great foods are having a revival, too. Butter, potato, and... Eggs. <laughs> Sounds a lot like breakfast later on Sunday morning. And more. Next, food at your doorstep. Hi. Hello. Hi, how are you? Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. We Deliver is the boast of online companies that bring food even entire meals to your home. So could this make your local grocer a thing of the past? Our cover story is reported by Anna Werner. Why go to the supermarket when it can come to you? Hi. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So I have four packages for you for Christine. Thank you. Yes. All right. Seattle mom Christine Holm gets groceries from Amazon. Yeah, have a great day. You too. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. On this day from the company's new super-fast Prime Now service. My husband and I both will stay up late to watch TV after the baby's in bed, and we think what ice cream we can order, you know. <laughs> her items come to her in just one hour. What it really is about is saving your time. There's lots of people who don't want to be in lines. Although this is not what your pantry looks like, I promise this is organized chaos. Stephanie Landry heads up Prime Now. You can get all of your basic groceries, electronics, toys, sporting equipment, books, all sorts of things. She walked us through this Amazon facility 
where workers take those online orders and fill up brown paper bags for delivery. How many items can you keep in a smaller warehouse like this one? Somewhere between 20 and 40,000 items. For larger orders, the company also offers Amazon Fresh, an online grocery store with even bigger warehouses. And it's not just Amazon. Grocery chains like Safeway and Whole Foods, even Google, are among at least 50 major outlets offering online delivery. Sales are up 15 percent from 2015 and could top $12 billion this year. Feel free to help dig in here. I mean, there's a, like I said, there's a lot of food you get, so... But the new shopping options aren't limited to plain groceries. We got some garlic chives here, some celery. Meet the meal kit. Is some wild Alaskan salmon. And here is uh, our antibiotic-free chicken for the chicken dish. Three dinners in a box for the week. Crispy chicken with mashed potato and spicy collard greens. Complete with recipes, pictures. Got a little bottle of white wine vinegar. And precisely measured ingredients. From the country's largest kit seller, Blue Apron. And that's it. One box. Now you're ready to cook. Ready to cook. Co-founder Matt Salzberg says subscribers order some 8 million meals every month. It's not a fad to cook at home. And what we think we're doing is just making cooking at home more affordable, more efficient, higher quality, and better for the environment than the way that people cook at home today, which is going to a grocery store. Want to cook like Martha Stewart? Well, she sells meal kits too. So do plated, peach dish, and even the New York Times. New York City mother of two, Lucy Bladder, gets hers from a company called HelloFresh. I think it's, for me, most about not having the time to go through all the aisles. And if I take my kids, that's really stressful. Taking kids shopping is super stressful. They ask for everything. It just makes it simple and super convenient. She gets three meals a week for about $60. Now, we should point out that you have a grocery store right across the street. I can actually see it from here. I do. So with all these new services, profits can't be far behind, right? I call it the sheep effect. I mean, Not so fast, says retail analyst like Kurt Jetta. When it comes to these companies jumping in... Well, they're just, well, they're doing it, they're doing it, but, like, just stop and think, is that right for you? So grocery stores are not dead. No, not at all. He says online shopping accounts for just 1.5% of the $800 billion grocery market. A key reason is that right now, he says, buying groceries online is work. So if I'm shopping online versus in the store, why is it so difficult for me online to figure out which can of baked beans I want? Well, because at any one time you're getting six on there. You can't really tell the size. You don't have a frame of reference. Versus here I have here. it all. I just see it all at once. I'm usually familiar with the layout. I can just go and do it and on to the next category. Plus, online shopping may save you time, but not money. Prices can be up to 25% higher. And Jetta says data show 90% of consumers still prefer the traditional grocery store. I like personally being able to see the sales. I love going up and down the aisles and seeing the ones that I didn't get to see. It just makes me feel good to see the products. So it, by trying to move this process out online, are they essentially solving a problem that doesn't exist? I would say they are, and they're also shooting themselves in the foot. So they're trying to invest in something that they make less money and undermines a business that is successful and people are generally happy with.
But don't tell that to Amazon's Stephanie Landry. I see real solutions to people's problems and lives today, which are very busy, very hustle bustle. And I think that we're providing a, a solution that makes people's lives better. So maybe on a Thanksgiving to come, your cooking will be out of the box. Definitely good enough to eat. That looks insanely good. But in the long run, will the recipe last? Ahead. What is this? A feast for the eyes. So here we have tapioca de genios. And the palate. Yum. Thank you. Enjoy. What better way to top off a day at the museum than with a bite at the museum? John Blackstone is our guide. At San Francisco's recently expanded Museum of Modern Art, record crowds have been feasting their eyes on the works of contemporary masters like Ellsworth Kelly, Frank Stella, and Andy Warhol. And then feasting themselves on the works of master chefs like Wiley Dufresne and Dominique Ansel. I think this is an idea that seems so obvious once you think about it. Chef Corey Lee reimagined the museum restaurant as another museum gallery. There are a lot of people who kind of stumble in here and they sit down and they're like, what is this? The restaurant called In Situ offers diners signature dishes of some of the world's most celebrated chefs. They open this menu that looks like a museum program and they start seeing dishes from around the world with dates on them and I think it's disorienting for them. Something they didn't expect, but it surprises them. And continues the experience of discovery that they were having in the museum, but with food. Lee is a celebrated chef himself. His three Michelin star restaurant menu is just blocks away. But the 37-year-old does not serve any of his own creations at in situ. I've come to think of Corey as our curator of food. SF MoMA's director, Neil Benezra, chose Lee to design a museum-worthy restaurant. He had a wonderful amount of curiosity about what, what we do, how our curators work, how these pictures come to be on our walls. So I explained to him that if we wanted to do an exhibition of Klaus Oldenburg, our curator would try to identify the best works of art by that artist and try to bring them to our museum. I wanted to do the same thing with food. And so Denner can come in here and try a dish from the chef in Belgium and the chef in Japan, the chef in Hong Kong, they can have this very fun and kind of new experience with food. Chefs from all over the U.S., Europe, and Asia have visited in situ, teaching the kitchen staff to reproduce their dishes perfectly. When in situ's executive chef Brandon Rogers prepares fresh steamed crab claw, it looks and tastes just as it did when first served at Hong Kong's Phuc Lam Moon back in 1970. We got the exact bowl that they use, prepare it in the same proportions that they serve it. We try to imitate that exactly. He does the same with Chef Thomas Keller's pan-roasted duck breast from the world-renowned French Laundry in California's wine country. The dish was from 1995, so within the first year of, of them opening. Some of the classic dishes served here are no longer on the menus where they originally appeared. And sometimes the chefs who created them are among the diners here. Alice Waters stopped in to try the Meyer lemon ice cream and sherbet dessert that she first made at her famed Berkeley restaurant, Chez Panisse, more than 25 years ago. It's a ton of pressure. When someone's coming to try the dish that they've entrusted you with, it's kind of a new feeling, but that's part of the fun of doing something new. That has turmeric, ginger, lemon, Coming up... That's got a kick. Going for the gold.
Could these golden stems be the true spice of life? Lee Cowan traveled all the way to Hawaii to find out. Not far from the surfer's paradise of Hanalei on Kauai's North Shore grows a spice as golden as a Hawaiian sunrise <laughs> that might just offer our bodies the same kind of healthy glow. It's called turmeric, a member of the ginger family, that before it's washed, looks a bit like an ugly carrot. Turmeric is not a root, but a rhizome, which means its stem is where all the good stuff is found. Native to India, turmeric has been around for thousands of years, but only recently has caught on here in the West. Now, people can't get enough. This year, do you know how many thousands of pounds of turmeric you're going to ship out? Tonnage. 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 Major tonnage. Phil Green and his wife Linda bought this 45-acre farm over a decade ago. Oh, man, this is a beautiful day, isn't it? Yeah. They had planned a semi-quiet retirement. How many buckets we got, Uncle? Until turmeric became one of the most talked-about new superfoods. Did you know what it was? Barely. <laughs> <laughs> to me, turmeric was a, a powdered spice in a jar that stayed on your shelf until you made a curry recipe, you know. Curries are its most common use, but turmeric's taste is only part of its allure. Scattered to the wind, it's a sacred part of Hindu ceremonies. It's also been used as a dye for fabrics. It's even what gives mustard its bright yellow hue. But the very thing that makes turmeric so colorful, a compound called curcumin, is what some researchers say also makes it a powerful weapon against disease. We are doing clinical trials on Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, arthritis, diabetes. And it seems to have an effect on all these different conditions? Absolutely. It is such a wonderful compound that it has been shown to work in every single instance people have tried. Biophysicist A.J. Goyle has been studying its medicinal qualities at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas. He says thousands of studies have shown that in a concentrated enough dose, the curcumin in turmeric has not only proven to be an effective antioxidant and anti-inflammatory, but also shows promise in preventing and even treating something as serious as cancer. We are trying to understand is what are the processes, what are the, what are the mechanisms, how it functions. So you know it works for the most yes. part, you're just not quite sure why. Yes, so the, exactly. While he says more research needs to be done, the word is already out at trend-setting restaurants, like Cafe Gratitude in Los Angeles. Here, turmeric is mixed with steamed almond milk, or blended into a shot, served with a dose of cayenne pepper. That's gonna be spicy, that's called I Am Brave. That has turmeric, ginger, lemon. Whoa, um, Cafe Gratitude's co-owner, Ryland Engelhart. In a Petri dish, that can knock out, like, you know, diseases. <laughs> yeah, it's got a kick. I mean, it's crazy. I, uh, it's become a phenomenon. It is the buzzword in the health world. So much so, Google's Food Trends report called turmeric a rising star of 2016. Is it as good as all the hype? Is it as healthy? Is it as good for us? People love it. They come back for it. Do I exactly know what it's providing for people? No. The Greens aren't sure either. But if it's both healthy and a cash crop, so be it.
farmers grow what people want, what people demand, and so we kept increasing because it kept selling. We've all heard the advice, eat the colors of the rainbow. Here in Hawaii, this brightly colored spice just might be the pot of gold at the end of one, too. Food lovers, of course, will welcome any word that things once thought to be bad for your health might actually be good. And throughout the morning, Serena Altschul has news of exactly that. Hello, ladies. Terry Golson is a good egg. Just ask her chickens. Wow, they look very happy. (laughs) Happy to be home. All 13 of them living in Golson's backyard outside Boston. This is Florence and Agatha. This is Pearl. Hi, Pearl. This chicken is Veronica. Do you look at them as the daughters that you didn't have? (laughs) (laughs) Not quite that far. (laughs) I do recognize that they're chickens. (laughs) And from chickens come eggs. So what do you use your eggs for? Well, I have two eggs every morning. You do? I do. Oh. Golson, a professional cook, Look at the color. Wow. That is orange. Dedicated an entire cookbook to this single subject. Just beautiful. Talk about putting all your eggs in one basket. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Come on, Veronica. I liked eggs. Come on, girls. Before I had my chickens, but it was only after I got the chickens and started eating eggs that were so good. There we go that I realized that eggs could really stand alone. But for decades, eggs were a no-no because they were linked to high cholesterol. Well, guess what? Recent research suggests eggs are okay again. So get them while they're hot. The entire egg is just so luscious and wonderful. Americans agree. We spent $6.7 billion on eggs over the past year alone. Do you think you have a sort of love affair with eggs? Oh, I definitely have a love affair with eggs. I do. (laughs) Now that's something to cluck about. Have a bit of the leaves. Something's tasty in the state of Denmark. Wild uh, blue lobster. And he's alive. He's alive. Yeah. Next. And we have things like uh, urchin. Whoops, better not walk out here. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The Great Dane is the perfect nickname for the chef of the restaurant many critics have proclaimed the finest in the world. With Faith Saley, we take a peek in the kitchen. Flowers, moss, ants. Not exactly what you might expect to find on your plate, unless, of course, you're at Noma. This restaurant in Copenhagen not only has two Michelin stars, but was named best restaurant in the world in 2010. Then, again, in 2011, 2012, and 2014. Never did I expect or dream up that it became what it is today. I mean, never. 38-year-old chef Rene Redzepi opened Noma in 2003, 
limiting himself strictly to ingredients found in the Nordic region. Back then, it was considered a tall order. If you were not cooking French or Italian, it was like, forget about it. Everything else was stupid. So Noma, a portmanteau of the words Nordic and Mo, the Danish word for food, looked for culinary inspiration from the land itself. We're looking for beets mustard, who is actually... Foragers, like Michael Larson, collect ingredients every day, rain or shine. So the berry here itself, we'll pickle that for the winter. You can use it to make jam. There's so many things you can do with this one. What's wrong with grabbing a bunch and, you know, sticking it in the freezer, drying it? Yeah, but I think that might be the difference between fine dining and normal dining. So this is fine dining. We need to have the best every day and it needs to be fresh. Have a bit of the leaves. Back in the kitchen, Red Zeppi and his team get to work. Oh, this is actually sliced rhubarb. So beautiful. That's cooked with seaweed and sorrel leaves. Perhaps what's most impressive about the kitchen is just how fresh everything is. Wild uh, blue lobster. And he's alive. He's alive. Yeah. How much does it cost to eat at Noma? A meal with drinks at Noma averaged is around $400 a person. If you were to envision that everybody down the food chain had a pay that would enable them to have a nice home, a car, any meal would be very expensive or more expensive. But the elegance and prestige of Noma is a world away from Red Zeppi's childhood in rural Macedonia. I mean, there's no refrigerators. You just go out and pick something out of the ground or from a tree or you kill an animal. If you want a chicken, you have to actually go and grab a chicken and Red Zeppi immigrated to Denmark when he was 12 years old, dropped out of school by 15, and began working as a restaurant apprentice a year later, during a much different culinary scene. Food in the 80s here were like microwave food. Seriously, it wasn't anything amazing at all, like ready-made meals most of the time. Noma changed all that, turning Copenhagen into a foodie destination and Red Zeppi into culinary royalty. It was a game changer for Noma. It was a game changer for Copenhagen as a city. It was a game changer for the whole Nordic region. But Noma's story doesn't end there. In a few months, the restaurant will move to a new part of town. We have the space to build a small urban farm, which is amazing for a cook to actually be able and pick your parsley a minute before you need it. Until then, Red Zeppi will also open a pop-up restaurant in Mexico using ingredients unique to that region. It's a full plate by any means, but then again, filling plates is exactly what this man does best. You know, I, I, I understand this thing that it's just food, but food is so much more than that as well. To some, when they get a fine meal, it's like a real transcendent moment. And to others, it's just a vessel to enjoy uh, the conversation better. And I'm perfectly fine with everything, as long as they enjoy their time with us. Ahead, and this right now is a young cheese made only four days ago. Say cheese. One taste of this cheese, and you might be tempted to say, holy cow. Moraka tells us why. Seven times a day, the Benedictine nuns of the Abbey of Regina Laudis gather for prayer and the singing of the psalms. 
This is their way of communing with the Lord. So is the work they do in this cloistered community in the Connecticut town of, wait for it, Bethlehem. Although she might deny it, the big cheese among the 38 sisters is Mother Noella, a revered international authority on traditional cheesemaking. A 2002 PBS documentary dubbed her the Cheese Nun. Did you eat a lot of cheese growing up? Uh, No, we didn't. I think we probably had provolone. Born Martha Marcellino, she entered the Abbey in 1973. I was a college dropout. I went to Sarah Lawrence. I went there because it was the most radical school in the country. I didn't even know cows before I came here. So when you join an abbey, you get to try many things you never would have done. Mm -hmm. And I happened to fall in love with a cow named Sheba and then learned to make cheese. Today, the dairy that began with Sheba's arrival in 1975 helps the abbey remain self-sustaining. The big red one is called Red Wing Lily. That's the cow I milk. Sister Jean-Paul serves the cows their breakfast and vice versa. Every morning, I take my cup of coffee to my cow and I squirt milk straight into the coffee. You can do that? You can do that, so I yeah. I can grab a cup of coffee and put it right under the udder. And go. That's what I do. And you know, and it makes it foamy. So it's like a, you call like it. Like a cappuccino. Like, yeah, we, the cow pacino. Oh my God, that is so I know, a cow pacino. In 1977, Mother Noella started making raw milk cheese, but her early efforts didn't quite slice it, so she prayed for a teacher. I was praying for an old French woman to teach me, but a young one came, and her grandmother taught her how to make this cheese. So, in a sense, yes, your prayers were answered. Ex- oh, they were so. definitely answered. What's made here is called Bethlehem cheese. This is the most beautiful mold right there. Wheels of it age in the Abbey's tiny cheese cellar. And this right now is a young cheese made only four days ago. So you wouldn't want to eat this now. It would be rubbery. It's the science behind cheese making that excites Mother Noella, who in the late 80s earned her PhD in microbiology from the University of Connecticut. What grew on here is this white powder and that's called Geotricum candidum, Uh and I did my doctorate on that. A Fulbright scholarship then took her to France, where she explored the cheese caves of Auvergne and became an expert on how different fungi changed the consistency and flavor of cheese. You can touch it. Okay, so wait. See how smooth that is? It is, it's it's silky. Yes, and you should see what that looks like under a microscope. Right. So we're looking at flavor on a microscopic level right now. We are. Love your fungi. Well, thank you. (laughs) Today, younger nuns like Sister Teresa Benedicta and Regina, an intern, learn how to separate the curds. That is whey. That's expelled whey. From the whey. Get nicely swaddled here. Right. And wrap them. Your baby cheeses. I knew that. (laughs) Joking aside, Mother Noella sees in a wheel of cheese a world beyond our own. When I look through a microscope and see the wonder, I see God in those microorganisms. It puts you in touch with God's creation. And for me, it's also can be very sacred. Mm -hmm. The motto of Benedictines is work and pray. And for us, our work is also a prayer. 
Ahead, one potato, two potato. Delmonico's in New York has been setting the table for its namesake steak for nearly two centuries. The first in America, we're told, to call itself a restaurant. Delmonico's is on one historian's list of spots that have shaped our popular taste. Here's Jim Axelrod. It's noon in the kitchen of Delmonico's in Lower Manhattan. Strip medium, filet medium, burger medium. And head chef Billy Oliva is more than just today's lunch rush on his mind. It's challenging. A lot of those famous dishes that were invented here, the lobster Newburgh, chicken alakeem. How do we keep people and, and, and you know, grandchildren and great-grandchildren of people that used to come here, how do we keep them interested in those dishes? That's my biggest challenge here. Is to take the history and bring it forward. Delmonico's is the nation's first formal restaurant. So in many ways, this kitchen is the birthplace of what's grown into a $780 billion industry. Its influence on our nation's menus is unmistakable. Eggs Benedict, baked Alaska. This is where all the steaks start and finish. And of course, the Delmonico steak all made their name here. So when people say Delmonico steak, that's this guy. Wet age, boneless, revival. This Delmonico steak sold all over the country. There's only one place it carries such meaning. It's right here. And this is it. And with a history that dates back to 1837. Look, we're going to Delmonico's for supper. Won't you join us? Lunch at Delmonico's. Join me at Delmonico's on Sunday instead. Delmonico's fingerprints are on more than just our menus. Most presidents, uh, Diamond Jim Brady, uh, Vanderbilt, uh, Abraham Lincoln ate here. Abraham Lincoln. Teddy Roosevelt ate here. That's right. In his new book, Yale historian Paul Friedman has come up with the 10 restaurants that changed America. Delmonico's may be on the cover. Delmonico's almost like Kleenex or Xerox became shorthand for restaurant. That's right. But all 10 make up a delicious part of our cultural history. So to understand how we go out to eat is to understand how we live, and that's to understand who we are. And how we think how we look at the world, what sorts of things we desire, and how we distinguish ourselves as Americans. Restaurants like Mama Leone's, which integrated ethnic food into the mainstream, and the Mandarin in San Francisco, which elevated it beyond chop suey. Sylvia's in Harlem and Antoine's in New Orleans, the influence of regional cuisine. How the highbrow shaped eating out, Le Pavillon, Chez Panisse, the Four Seasons, and how the middle brow did as well. Schraff's and Howard Johnson's. On the road around the corner, here's the place to go. Howard Johnson's? Howard Johnson's, join the folks who know. Howard Johnson's is the basis for not only the fast food industry like McDonald's or Burger King, but the fast casual industry like Chili's or Denny's. It's going to be 6.15. Americans now spend more money on eating out than on buying food to cook at home. And even if you never step foot in the place that started it all, don't ever forget, your favorite neighborhood joint has a lot more in common than you might think 
with iconic restaurants like Delmonico's. Have you ever been somewhere else and you open up the menu and you see Lobster Newburger, you see Delmonico's steak? All the time. And do you think to yourself, that's my place? All the time. I, the, the last time that happened to me, um, I was with my mom and she told the waiter, he works where they invented that. And the waiter looked at her like, what? <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? What's hot? Find out next. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. When it comes to chicken, some people definitely like it hot, as our Jan Crawford has discovered. At Hattie B's in Nashville, the line goes down the block for what once was the city's best kept secret, hot chicken. Uh, can I get the large dark plate, uh, hot? I'm gonna have uh, the tenders, but I want them hot. It's an addictive combination of pleasure and pain. Fried chicken doused in cayenne and enough spices to make you sweat. Wait, your eyes are watering. Ooh, it's because he doesn't do that. <laughs> let me tell you, yeah, I don't know if this was a good move or not. That's father and son owners Nick Bishop and Nick Jr. And I'm going to start hiccups here in just a minute. <laughs> they fry up their chicken five ways, including hot, damn hot, and shut the cluck up. Why do you think people want to eat things that cause them pain? You kind of get high from it. High? <laughs> really? Local legend has it hot chicken started more than 80 years ago with the family of this woman, Andre Prince Jeffries. Of course it started with a woman. <laughs> of course. My great uncle, Thornton Prince, being, as they say, a womanizer. A womanizer who was cheating on his girlfriend. So she decided revenge was a dish best served hot and added some spices to his fried chicken. But this woman was angry. So she wanted to let him know. So she dashed something on that chicken. But he liked it. He did. And then that was the beginning. I, we assume that was the beginning. But it's so sad that we don't know who she was. But her legacy lives on. Great Uncle Thornton started a restaurant using the girlfriend's recipe. And Prince's Hot Chicken Shack still packs them in. Number 48, number 54. These days, there's competition, even from some of the big boys. His KFC spicy, smoky, crispy Nashville hot chicken tenders. And for those with a stomach of steel, there's the death row chicken at Big Shakes. Cooks actually have to wear gas masks. And brave participants in its regular death row challenge must sign a waiver. You can start now. It's no gimmick. Even a few bites burn. But on the night we were there, comedian Chad Ryden kept asking for more, chewing his way to victory. 
a guy here who had like three bites and, and had to run out. Amateur. That's just sad. That's sad. Why, why did he even come? But if he's an amateur, what does that make you? Uh, an idiot. And maybe that's why, when it comes to taking the heat, Andre Prince Jeffries, the matriarch of the place that started it all, has a confession. So you made all these different um, levels. You right. Know, so which one do you like? Mild. Mild? <laughs> you like the mild. I can't tolerate anything hot. <laughs> You so, eat at least a potato a day. I, I do, yeah. <laughs> okay. so Alan Dicker has potatoes in his roots. It's a staple in, uh, in our dining table every night when I was growing up. How you guys doing? How are you? Good. So when he opened up a restaurant in 2011, guess what theme he had in mind? Every item on the menu is potato-based. You can't come here and say, can I have chicken, cilantro, and jalapenos? <laughs> you gotta have a potato. You gotta have a potato. That's the base. The humble potato isn't so humble anymore. It's a star. Okay, now any veggies. Dicker says he serves about a thousand customers a day at his four East Coast locations of Potatopia. Basically, you pick a potato. Then you have a protein. Add a protein. Then you have unlimited veggies. You add a cheese. Yep. And they finish it off with one of these sauces. So the potato becomes the blank canvas Correct. for your imagination. Exactly. White potatoes are now the single most eaten vegetable in the U.S. But back when carb-free diets were all the rage, potatoes were forced to go underground. The, the, the problem is not the potato. Right. The problem is what you do with the potato, the technique, the way you cook the potato, and then what you add to it. Seeming to back him up, the most recent USDA dietary guidelines recommends eating starchy vegetables, including potatoes. Having it plain is best for your health, but flavor-wise... There's so many different techniques that you could cook the potato in. Right. Uh, it, it's mind-blowing, it really is. Take french fries, for example. Back in the early 1800s, legend has it that Thomas Jefferson introduced them to America at a White House dinner. That's it, and then we just roll it up. Now, Alan Dicker is poised to launch something equally revolutionary. What is this? It's a croissant dough with a creamy mashed potato filling. Excellent, huh? Mmm. Wow. The sweet with the savory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like the potato's ready for a comeback? Absolutely. Bet you can't top that. Ahead, uh, Christy Brinkley. Sparkly <laughs> is the word. Eat, drink, and be merry. A special edition of Sunday Morning. Here again is Jane Pauley. Uptown Girl was a huge hit for Billy Joel back in the day when he was about to marry Christy Brinkley. These days, Brinkley is an upbeat advocate for Bellissima, a sparkling wine. Upbeat and, as Mark Phillips discovered, very hands-on. Oh, I'm involved here. It's my new workout. Yeah. Uh, uh. No one will ever accuse Christy Brinkley of a lack of enthusiasm. Now she's even more motivated. You can't even say bellissima without 
Bellissima, you know, just... Without wanting a drink. Bellissima is her very own wine label, a new range of Prosecco, the Italian fizz that's about the hottest thing in the liquor business right now. U.S. sales are up about a third each year lately. You are tasting nature, not chemicals. And not Christy Brinkley and her partners think they found a way to break through the market clutter. Her. Of all the places I've pictured you, the loading dock wasn't one of them, I, gotta, I have to oh. say. Believe me, I'm involved in every aspect of this. <laughs> More than four decades into a modeling career, Christy Brinkley never met a camera lens she didn't like, and that didn't like her back. <laughs> Point one at her, and this sort of thing happens. Cheers. Yes. Prosecco, long the pre-dinner tipple in Italy, is being marketed in the U.S. as a kind of champagne without the pretensions and without the price tag. More bubbles for the buck. Were you a Prosecco girl before you got involved in the Prosecco business? Oh yeah, I've had my fair share. <laughs> in the Veneto region of Italy, about an hour north of Venice, where anything that calls itself Prosecco has to come from, they can't make enough of the stuff. It's really happening right now. Everybody wants Prosecco. If you're going to get into the wine business, this is the place. And this is where Christy has come. For, for grapes. Can you tell? A decent bunch of grapes and any other bunch of grapes. Well, all our Bellissima grapes are gorgeous. Mm, that one was. She's not only found a wine she likes, Christy Brinkley seems to have found the fountain of youth. Oh, yes. She's 62 years old now. I'll say that again. She's 62 years old, going on 22 by the look of her. You know, I have been around a long time. It has been 37 years since she became the nation's pinup girl, appearing on three consecutive Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue covers from 1979 to 81. The only time anybody's ever done that. And her life has been like a timeline of the boomer generation, if a little more glamorous. Not everybody has a pop star husband in whose music video you can more or less play yourself. I have a theme song, <laughs> you know, wherever I go. <laughs> Billy Joel was one of four husbands and four divorces. Too good, too bad, she says. There were three children along the way. It's been a life of mostly highs and some significant lows, from her family's beginnings in Michigan, to surfer girl California, to an art student's life in Paris, where she was discovered. In a post office, the legend goes. I never really wanted to be a model. That was never a dream of mine. And I was a little embarrassed, but I needed the money. <laughs> but my friends, you know, were, were kind of like, well, it's so bourgeois of you to, you know, do this. How can you do this, you know? And I was like, well, I can afford to take us all to uh, Greece. Okay? Uh, you know, and they're like, okay, <laughs> not bad. <laughs> Whenever she's been counted out, she's always seemed to bounce back. 
never with a higher or perhaps more unlikely rebound than when she was asked to play Roxy Hart in the long-running musical Chicago. The reviews, like her marriages, were mixed, but it jump-started her career once again. I never felt like I retired. I always get a little bit insulted when I read former model, and I'm like, former? What do they think I've been doing all this time? I'm still here. I haven't gone anywhere. This is authentic skincare. Christy has used her fame in product promotion before. There's the skincare line. With a nice stretch. And gym equipment. Ah, total gym. And in keeping with the always look your best theme, her fans may be pleased to know the new Prosecco range is organic and includes a sugar-free option. It's zero sugar, it's zero carbs. This is safe for, for people with diabetes, uh, for people on a diet. Cheers. What the world Cheers. needs, diet Prosecco. Diet Prosecco. Down the hatch. <laughs> and if anybody thinks Christy Brinkley's new line is a way of toasting the end of her career, toast again. If like people are hoping to get a bottle of my Prosecco, so like pop that cork and say, yay, she's retired, that's not going to happen right away. <laughs> Nourishing the soul as well as the body is the goal behind a restaurant Tracy Smith now takes us to. On a busy corner in Atlanta's Old Fourth Ward is arguably one of the hottest restaurants in the city. Here at Staple House, the open kitchen is a hive of perfection. Food is handled like artwork, plated up with tweezers, and devoured by sellout crowds. And above their heads are quotes from famous fighters like Muhammad Ali. If your dreams don't scare you, they aren't big enough. Which perfectly describes this dream, a dream as big as the heart itself. Chocolate mousse and some toasted pumpkin seeds. Jen and Ryan Heidinger were famous for throwing pop-up dinner parties in their Atlanta home. Everything from five-star cuisine to Ryan's favorite, chicken wings. Great job. And in 2012, they wanted to open a real place of their own. So that was, that was the idea, just to open up a, a small little neighborhood restaurant. Simple. Simple. And they were in the middle of making it happen when Ryan went to his doctor for a stomach ailment. That's when their lives caved in. One doctor said, I'm 99.9% sure it's stage 4 gallbladder, and you've got anywhere from 6 to 12 months. How do you wrap your mind around that? We didn't. Pure shock. How did you hear that he was sick? I had a missed call. Kara Heidinger is Ryan's younger sister. I'm sorry, it's okay. It's an emotional story. It's our story. And it's joyful and it's amazing, but it's also hard and it's sad at times. Be the best person I possibly can be. When the news got out, friends and neighbors wrapped their collective arms around Ryan and held a massive fundraiser to help with his doctor bills. Over 800 people showed up, live music, a live auction, and $275,000 was raised to help him out. $275,000. Mm -hmm. Was that enough? It was more than enough. And they used the leftovers to start the Giving Kitchen, a fund to help local restaurant workers through their own personal catastrophes. Hey! 
Server Abby McDonald and restaurant manager Jesse Burdett's baby son Silas was born premature and can't breathe on his own yet. Now the baby has an expensive machine to help keep him alive, and his parents have help with all the bills. So what did the Giving Kitchen do? They paid our rent for four months. They gave us a grant for rent. They don't know you personally, but they're willing to, you know, jump through hoops and, and do anything they can to help you out. Uh, it's really refreshing. It really gives you some more uh, faith in humanity. To date, the Giving Kitchen has helped more than 600 Atlanta restaurant workers, with grants adding up to more than a million dollars. But there was nothing money could do for Ryan Heidinger. He passed away in January 2014 at age 36. Still, his family kept his dream alive and opened Staple House the following year. His wife, Jen, runs the place. His old pal, Ryan Smith, does the cooking, and his sister, Kara, is in charge of service. And the food is, it's incredible. I would eat here if I had a day off. <laughs> the editors of Bon Appetit felt the same way, naming Staple House 2016's Best New Restaurant in America. Best Restaurant 2016. Oof, yeah. What's more, the charity gets a percentage of the profits, like... 100%. 100% of our net profits after taxes, after we pay everyone, um, we donate those back to the Giving Kitchen. 100%. Anything left over. You got to believe that somewhere, Ryan Heidinger must be smiling. You guys had a conversation about um, what the menu might be in heaven? Yeah. He said that he hoped heaven had chicken wings. <laughs> Truth is, Staple House could be as close to heaven as a restaurant can get. A reminder that a dream, like a meal itself, is best when it's shared with the ones you love. Butter. We lay it on thick. Next. For generations, countless American cooks of great talent have been denied their place at the table. Now, Michelle Miller tells us one woman is working to give them the recognition they deserve. Smiling, happy Aunt Jemima, famous for her secret recipe, pancakes, waffles, and buckwheat. Her smiling face has been selling pancake mix since 1889. Aunt Jemima one of the most recognizable, enduring, and yes, controversial icons in the world of commercial cookery. A happy plantation mammy who had very little to do with the reality of slavery. The idea of a mammy was a constructed image, and Aunt Jemima was just an additional myth on top of a myth. So I'm going to make cornbread dressing um, that we have every year for Thanksgiving. Tony Tipton Martin, food writer, journalist, and cook, set out to uncover the real faces and real stories of African-American cooking in the Jemima Code. This book was conceived of as a beautiful coffee table book that would contradict the negative, degraded image of this enslaved woman in a box. So this book is from 1827. Tipton Martin's own collection of more than 300 rare and historic cookbooks by African Americans was an important part of her research. 
Cookbooks are a way women, in particular, find their identity, right? I mean, the recipes that they choose, the stories that they tell about themselves, all of that is very unique to each individual writer. Melinda Russell was a free woman of color who published her cookbook in 1866. She credits the women in the community, the white women, who helped her bring her book to print. Really? Yeah, and it's just a really lovely um, expression of community that existed between the women. Chef Lena Richard had her own TV cooking show in New Orleans well before Julia Child took to the airwaves. What we learn about her is how she thought of herself, right? Mm -hmm. She portrays herself as a lady. Mm -hmm. Her own cookbook was self-published in 1939. The great James Beard lobbied Houghton Mifflin to publish her book. Huh? And so in 1940, this book comes out, and it's now called New Orleans Cookbook by Lena Richard. So, but now, guess what? Her image. Not there. Mm. They removed it. I don't think you cooked enough. No, I didn't, but this was just for us. <laughs> Tony Tipton Martin hopes these cookbooks with their stories and recipes will provide a richer, truer picture of African-American contributions to the American table. There's much more um, to our cooking and who we've been, culinarily speaking. The artistic aspects um, are evident in these books. Well, does it pass? Oh, yeah. And isn't that what Thanksgiving is all about? Sharing food and stories. Right. Perfect. And celebrating our commonality and our differences. Oh, my God. Here's something worth spreading. Butter is back. This one is from Vermont. Food writer Elaine Kosrova is a bona fide butter lover. I would just like to point out that about 50% of what's going on in your refrigerator is butter. Yes. <laughs> How long have humans been eating butter? Thousands and thousands of years. It's a rich history, Kosrova writes in her new book. The cheesecloth allows you to gather it. Just and talking about butter gets her all melty. You can cream it, you can whip it, you can layer it, and then still it comes to the table sort of naked by itself and it's delicious there too. Last year, the average American ate more than 22 sticks of butter. Holy cow. Thank you. But for decades, I switched from butter to imperial margarine. Margarine stole the show. Sure tastes like butter. Then came news of unhealthy trans fats in some margarines. Eating margarine rather than butter may not be as heart smart as we thought. And we were suddenly back to the basics of butter. It's so elemental. It just tastes so good. Still, at 800 calories a stick, being a heavy butter user could make you a heavy butter user. Right now, the USDA guidelines mm. discourage against eating too much saturated fats, mm -hmm. including butter. I mean, it's not like you sit down to a stick or a half a stick of butter. You know, you have a tablespoon here or there. And even in moderation, one thing is certain. Butter makes everything better. <laughs> <laughs> then you want a good tablespoon of butter. 
somewhere, Julia Child is smiling. Ahead, I don't know of a state that I haven't shipped at least one cake to. The island tradition that takes the cake. Cakes like these are a tradition on one small American island. Dessert island, you might call it. With Rita Braver, we set sail. Smith Island, reachable only by boat, is less than 10 miles off the coast of Maryland, but a world apart. British settlers first came here in the 17th century, and today it's a tranquil place, unless you happen onto the kitchen of the Smith Island cake lady. How many can you do in a day? No more than 10. No more than 10 cakes I a day. like to keep it at six or seven because I don't know who's going to wear eight first, me or the oven. <laughs> Mary Ada Marshall ships the cakes to customers on the mainland, but she has no website. How they find out about you? Yes, the neighbor tells the neighbor and the son tells the daughter or whatever. I have no idea. It is a labor-intensive process. Eight to 10 thin layers each baked in its own pan. So, okay, almost, yeah, almost. <laughs> then carefully iced. I just put a dollop of frosting in the middle. Marshall's island roots go back countless generations. And like most women here, she learned to bake Smith Island cake as a child. But no one really knows how it all began. And I think it became a competition between the women of who could get the most little layers. Does it taste as good as it looks? I hope it will. It does. And when she started taking them up to the state legislature, they voted Smith Island cake the official Maryland state dessert in 2008. Well, we were hollering like we won the Super Bowl. But the island has also suffered significant setbacks. Coastline lost to erosion and rising seawaters a once-thriving seafood industry now struggling, and a population that's dwindled to around 200. But cakes are on the rise, ever since a young Wharton Business School grad happened to taste one. When did you go from saying, this is really good cake, to let me see if maybe there's a business here for me? Almost immediately. And so Brian Murphy founded the Smith Island Baking Company in 2009. He started by visiting the island and talking to Mary Ada Marshall. She says, Brian, I love this idea. Can I pray for you? And I said, you pray? And she says, honey, you can't live in the middle of Chesapeake Bay and not pray. In fact, Murphy first opened the bakery right on the island with an all-local staff. But after seven years, he moved across the water to Crisfield, Maryland, vexed by the island's idiosyncrasies. The roof leaks, the power doesn't work, the internet doesn't work, the bay freezes over. Yet you still regret that you had to oh, move. Oh, terrible. I, these are real people. The bakery still employs any original Smith Islanders who want to stay on. How do you know if a Smith Island cake tastes good or not? When there's none left. <laughs> but though she wishes the bakery well, Mrs. Marshall wonders whether it's still a Smith Island cake if it isn't baked on Smith Island. It's just our dessert, <laughs> plain and simple. 
I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. Brighten your mornings with CBS News Sunday Morning Merchandise from ParamountShop.com. Shop mugs, sweatshirts, and T-shirts to start your mornings with style. Take 20% off at checkout with code SUNDAY20 at ParamountShop.com. That's 20% off at checkout on all CBS News Sunday Morning products with code SUNDAY20 at ParamountShop.com.